the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. Sport in the Cold War often concentrates on international competition, but domestic soccer, particularly in the Soviet Union, throws up some fascinating stories. The legendary Georgian side, Dinamo Tbilisi, showcased a distinctly Georgian style of football, trailblazing their way through the late 1970s and early 1980s. Dinamo's roots go back to the earliest days of Stalinism, but football's origins in Georgia date back to the 19th century and early 1920s. Eric Scott is a specialist in Soviet history with a particular interest in Georgian soccer. Eric, what is a Georgian style of football? The Soviet Union was a multi-ethnic state. It was incredibly diverse. There were all sorts of different ethnic groups. There were 15 different republics, but there was really only one group that put forth a visible and viable and commented upon alternative to the dominant style of play, and that was the Georgians. The Georgian style was heavily mythologized, uh, but this mythology held that Georgian soccer was more artistic, more individualistic, involved greater acts of agility, more improvisation, more past dexterity, and this evoked for Soviets particularly Georgian dance. So just as we associate Brazilian soccer with samba, or perhaps Argentinian soccer with tango, Georgian soccer was closely associated and was sometimes looked at almost interchangeably with Georgian dance. And what was this all about? Was it a a footballing ethos? Was it a philosophy? Was it fitness? Was there a model for the developments of this particular style? It's hard to say where the models come from, but we know that as early as the 1920s, the Georgians were, were referred to as the great Uruguayans, which was a reference both to Uruguay's dominance in the soccer world at that time, but also to, to a southern style of play that the Georgians supposedly embodied. And uh, this was an association that, that continued and really blossomed in the, in the post-Stalinist period in particular. Uh, But it's strange, I mentioned the post-Stalinist period, uh, that the history of Georgian soccer is not just about this artistry, but also about an intimate relationship with the highest levels of Stalinist power. Let's just talk about the patronage and and the power, maybe invisible power, that was around Georgian football, because of course Stalin was from Georgia. Did that imbue Georgian soccer with this idea of, well you know, maybe we'll just go easy on the, on Georgian teams. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, actually, that this, this power was not just invisible. It was quite visible. And the patronage was most closely linked to one of the most famous Georgian Bolsheviks and Stalin's Georgian compatriot, Lavrenti Beria, who made his career in Georgia before he went on to Moscow to head the People's Commissariat of, of Internal Affairs, really becoming the top spy master of the Soviet Union. 
And even as he went to Moscow, he still continued to support his home team. But as the most important political figure in Georgia in the 1930s, Beria did a lot to support the team. He made sure that the state invested huge resources in developing an infrastructure for soccer in Georgia. He made sure that this team from the periphery, from a non-Slavic country located far away beyond the Caucasus Mountains, was taken seriously as a top contender. Dinamo was known throughout the Soviet Union as the team of the secret police. And Barry's association was evident from the moment you got to the stadium, you would see this is the stadium named after Lavrenti Pavlovich Beria. If you looked at a fan guide from this period of time, it would always open by praising Beria and his support for Dinamo Tbilisi. This makes it all the more interesting, I think, that after Beria's execution at the end of 1953, after his fall from power, that the team is really reinvented as a team of artistry, of an aesthetically pleasing team, as a team of, of national importance, and its associations with the secret police, although they still exist, are, are really downplayed. I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like being a referee, uh, refereeing a game involving Dinamo Tbilisi at the Beria Stadium, and there's a controversial penalty within the first couple of minutes. I imagine you, it would be quite terrifying. Um, this was someone who took... took took the sport really seriously. And, and um, you know, this was not unique that, that Dinamo Tbilisi had high-ranking patrons. There was a lot of informal patronage of specific clubs. But Barry was certainly one of the most fearsome individuals in the Soviet Union. He held the grudge. And uh, he would make sure that he could do everything within his power, which was quite a lot, to, to see his team successful. But this wasn't just about Barry's patronage. I mean, they were pretty good. In fact, they were always the team that was almost going to take the championship. I mean, this continued. So they built on these Stalinist foundations. The stadium was still there, world-class stadium. It was Barry's name was crossed off, but it remained there. The training facilities were still there. Much of the team was still there, and they continued to develop new talent. And so in 64, they took the Soviet top league. Uh, they were known as the Golden Boys, Okros Bichebi in, in Georgian. And this was a, was a new sort of team, too, because gone was this image that this was the strictly controlled team of the, of the secret police. But this, these were um, people embodying a new sense of Georgian masculinity, young guys uh, seen as as cohesive as a team and also signifying this, this new national pride that Georgians had something to be proud of at the all-union level. After the downfall of, of Beria, after Stalin's death, there was uh, this removal of Georgians from the top levels of Soviet power. But now Georgians had new role models, uh, role models who were quite different and people who were being successful at the all all Soviet level, and they would go on, in fact, to to be successful internationally. This post-barrier period uh, really brought Dinamo Tbilisi to a wider European stage in the in the seventies and eighties. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that and about uh, some of the famous scalps that they took along the mm -hmm. way. Well, Georgians still talk about today talk about uh, the defeat of of Liverpool uh, three three nil. Uh, the uh, Cup Winners' Cup in 1981. They were also dominant within the Soviet Union uh, in, in the late 70s. And this was, at the time now, we look at it as a peak of the team's glory, but there was this belief that they would continue to develop, to continue to go on. 
in a way, this success generated some some grievances as well. I mean, it it really emboldened people in Georgia to believe that they could do better without the Soviet Union. When they went abroad, they wanted to be known as as a Georgian team and not as a Soviet team. And the worst the worst uh, thing that they encountered, the thing that bothered them the most, really, was was being called a Russian team because they believed that they represented a distinctly non-Russian style of play. And people in the Soviet Union referred to them in this way, either to to praise them or to castigate them. That these are this is a visible, uh, visibly ethnic uh, team. And so when the West Ham United you know, fan guide referred to them as Russians, you know this is something that Georgian journalists back in Tbilisi picked up on and you know really took umbrage uh, about. Ray Clemens, Bill Thompson, Ray Kennedy, Alan Hansen, Kenny Dalglish, Jimmy Case, David Johnson, Terry McDermott, Remy Stoulis. That night, Eric, when uh, Dinamo Tbilisi beat Liverpool, must have been a hell of a night. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the kind of thing that's gone down in, in Georgian footballing legend? Absolutely. This is one of the absolute highlights of Georgian football of all time. And uh, this came at the heels of a, of a defeat against Liverpool played in England. And this was really such a, such a notable match because it was so dominated by Dinamo Tbilisi. They relatively quickly went up 1-0. Then another goal was scored. And by the last, the last one, which came in the, in the second half of the match, I mean, it was clear that, that Georgian side was dominant, you know, for, for Georgian fans. I mean, if we look at the footage of this match, if we look, listen to the audio of the announcer, just absolutely losing it. Alexandre Shivadze, Damekare Ray Clemens. Dartma, Ari. Fans, just like the players, are sort of associated with this over-the-top flamboyant style. I mean, just absolutely ecstatic at the end of the match, uh, spilling out onto the track. The pitch was usually surrounded by Soviet police. But in this case, you know, either the police are celebrating with them or there's so many fans are just spilling over onto the track, uh, running onto the pitch, uh, just absolutely going wild. And I think people you know, are probably still celebrating even today somewhere. And then just the interviews that are conducted with with the Liverpool players, with the coach, with Paisley, praising the Georgian side, you know, talking about how they really deserved the victory, that they really played the better game. This really emboldened the Georgians to think that they had made it um, not just within the world of Soviet soccer, but on the international stage. And for a country of about four million people, this was a really big deal and still is. People still remember that match. People will still tell you the score of that match. 3-0. Praise from Bob Paisley is praise indeed. That man knew what he was on about, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. And, and Georgians knew that he did. They knew that he was, was a very respected figure in, in football internationally. And, uh, and they felt that uh, they, des- they deserved it. And um, in some ways, it meant more than praise from Moscow. Because the Soviet team was never that successful, despite Cold War divisions between the sides making it in, in international soccer at that time meant not just defeating your opponent, but also winning praise from him. And, and praise from Paisley, one of the legends of soccer in general, was really confirming that the Georgians were doing something right and that they could do it on their own eventually. And this, this I think, was one of the things that they would refer to when they decided to, to, to break away from the Football Federation of the Soviet Union. As Barcelona has, uh, has its Messi, as Brazil had its Pelé, um, did Georgian football have uh, a particular 
striking number nine or a, a tricky inside left? There was really a succession of players with actually quite different styles. And this is where I want to really emphasize that, um, you know, the, the idea of a national style is, you know, is also somewhat of a stereotype. I mean, these are associated, if we look at, for example, David Kipiani of the of the 1981 team. There were also some famous Georgian defenders, Murtaz Kortsilava being one of them, who were, were known as being very agile, very tricky, fooling opponents in very flamboyant and showy ways. It was always about praising this, this, this display, uh, this very flamboyant style that could be seen in, in many different in, in technical aspects of the game. Aesthetically interesting, uh, artistic, uh, spontaneous, it could be criticized as uh, undisciplined, and uh, the condition, the physical condition of its players uh, was not seen to be as high, so that they might tire, uh, they might play great in one match and play poorly in the next. Uh, so they were seen as inconsistent, sometimes as a team of individuals rather than as a cohesive and coherent uh, unit. Unfortunately, the story of, of Georgian soccer af after 1991 and after the Cold War is, is one of disappointment. There were a few key players, some final products of the Soviet system that went on to, to great success. And uh, Georgi Kinkladze, who went on to play for Manchester City, is one of them. And he was really seen, young guy uh, in the late 80s, seen as, as the future of Georgian soccer. He, in fact, was recruited by the, the first professional team in the Soviet Union, the first commercial team in the Soviet Union, which was in Georgia. Uh, then he was quickly acquired by Dinamo uh, Tbilisi. But when Manchester City offered him £2 million, there was nothing the Georgians could do to match that. And so he went on and, you know, according to some Manchester City supporters, at least, he carried on this Georgian style of, of soccer, which, again, was, was either technically brilliant, artistically interesting, dazzling, but could also sort of fizzle out because of a lack of discipline, lack of consistency. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.